Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Catherine Johnson about her new book, Paris Savages. Catherine, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I'm really excited to be talking to you today about this. Catherine, congratulations on a fascinating book. Paris Savages really opens up a largely unknown chapter of history. Where did your research for Paris Savages begin? Yes, well, it started quite a while ago, back in 2011. There was a fantastic documentary that that actually won awards in New York, which was an Australian ABC Away documentary about the discovery of a full-body cast of an Aboriginal man, a butchler man from Fraser Island, that had been found in France. And it was in storage in a museum in Lyon, a documentary by Daniel Browning, And it just intrigued me so much. I hadn't heard about this episode in history where people were taken to Europe and they were exhibited as as curiosities, really. And a group from Fraser Island were taken in 1882, three three people. That documentary sparked a a series of questions for me, which actually turned into a a fully-fledged PhD and, and, and this novel. Uh, and it took me from, well, from Australia. I went uh, to Harvey Bay and uh, met a, a bachelor academic, an artist there, who was able to uh, guide me and do some fact-checking. And I went to Europe and followed in the footsteps of where this bachelor trio went and where they were likely to have gone to, given the research that I'd done about other groups who had been taken to Europe. So this book, even though it's a work of fiction, is actually based on the lives of real people. It is. It's based. It is based on a true story, and and I've tried to incorporate all the the research that I've done in the um, in the last six years. So the group were shown in Berlin at the Berlin Panopticum, which was the the Waxworks Museum. They had casts made of them. They were shown. Would you believe in the Dresden Zoo, where they threw boomerangs and they were shown in Lyon. Well, at least Bonnie, one of the group, was shown in Lyon. They were shown in various places on a, on a tour of, of Germany and, and certainly went to France. And where there are gaps in the history, because in some ways history history has failed us, we really only get one side of the story. Where, where history has failed us, I, I then have to imagine the other parts of the story. And and actually in the acknowledgements, I, I try and spell out where the, the fact and the fiction uh, end and be- and begin. The story is set primarily in Germany, but it's called Paris Savages. Why the title Paris Savages? The evidence really is that they were predominantly in Germany, but the cast of Bonnie was found in Lyon. And in my research about ethnographic exhibitions, uh, it was very clear that Paris was a, a key centre. In fact, the Jardin de Climatisation, the, the gardens in, in Paris that... Uh, exhibited people from all around the world. The man who was the director at the time, St. Hilaire, was in cahoots really with Hagenbeck, who was also uh, probably the person who guided the this Aboriginal group through Europe. 
um, he would often show people from that he had first in Hagenbeck and take them then to, to places like Paris. So it was really a hotbed of this kind of human exhibition. In fact, when I went there in 2012, there was an exhibition in Paris, uh, which I just missed, but uh, have got the, the catalogue for and have interviewed scientists and academics who have been involved in this. And they made it very clear that this was this was a very important period in terms of our views about race and, and about how the West, it really says more about the West than it does about the people who were being shown in that these people were being looked at as, as the other. The book begins with what I suppose we would call the central character of the book, Hilda. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the character of Hilda? Hilda is a purely fictional character, but her father was Lewis Muller, who was an engineer who'd been working in in Australia for some time. And the story is told in his fictional daughter's point of view. So she had been living, or the family had been living on Fraser Island for some time in the story. And she has some insights into the, the the bachelor culture and is convinced by her father that this is going to be a good thing to do, to take people um, overseas and to have to have the world see how remarkable their culture is because she she is uh, someone who really appreciates that culture. And at that time in history, there had been massacre after massacre of of people in Queensland, and it was a very, very grim part of colonial history. So what they were leaving behind wasn't wasn't entirely wonderful. So it's told in Hilda's viewpoint in part, and there are some alternating points of view as well that point to the silences in the story. And I I don't I don't feel that it's my place to try and tell the bachelor perspective, which of course is the missing part of the history. I don't feel it's my place to tell that uh, from a bachelor point of view, but yet I don't want to leave that silenced either because that that is what's happened in our history so much. I want to point to those silences and to have a very imagined view about what this might have meant for those people. Hilda woke in the blue pre-dawn light on her slatted bed, her shape imprinted into the grass-filled mattress for the last time. She thought of Bonnie lying in his shelter, Was he also awake? What would he tell his nephew before he left? The boy had asked many questions. Uncle, what will it be like to cross such vast seas? Why are you going? What will you see? What are the people like in the far off land? What do they eat? What do they wear? What dances do they do? What songs do they sing? Are you afraid? Why are you leaving me? Already she had heard Bonnie tell the boy that whatever happened in the distant land on the far side of the sea, he would remain a proud bachelor man. He would always leave his woomera and spear by his side as he slept and would remember the lessons he had been taught during his initiation to manhood. He reminded the boy that, like him, his real name was Bonangera, although the whites called him Bonnie, just as they called the boy Little Bonnie, and that no matter where either of them went in the world, they would always be watched over by the great spirit Birrell and would only have to think of one another to be together again. Catherine, that passage takes place the morning of the group's departure from Fraser Island for Germany, but it also says a great deal about tribal identity and the deep spiritual connection between the Bachelor people and its culture. What was your gateway into that Bachelor culture? 
Yes, so I certainly don't assume to have a great understanding or knowledge or I'm not a bachelor person. So this is something that I needed to research and needed to ask questions about and need to be very respectful about as well. So I was directed to a book that I urge readers to have a look at, which is called The Legends of Muni Jal, which has a, a series of uh, stories that are told in, in the bachelor voice by bachelor people. Olga Miller is the, the lady who illustrated the story and Will Reeves is the man who wrote it. So I read I read that story and I, I spoke to a bachelor academic and spoke to the copyright holder too of that and he was very happy for a few quotes to be included in the book. So they were a few little insights. I spent time on Fraser Island when I was a bit younger in my university days and was very moved by the incredibly beautiful place. So, so really it was reading and it was talking to people. And then the book is, is trying to reflect an appreciation of that, but in no, in no means, in no way, um, an appropriation of that. I'm incredibly aware of those sensitivities. So it's, it's uh, not my place to tell that story, but yet the bachelor culture is, is within the book. And it's a very important thing, I think, that stories aren't just Eurocentric tellings, which is what which is what history has um, historically done in in terms of um, colonial history. And from an idyllic Fraser Island, the action moves to Germany first to Hamburg and then to Berlin. And from that point on, the story takes on a fairly ominous direction. The troop are received enthusiastically at first, but things soon seem to reveal themselves, don't they, Catherine? The group and Hilda, in fact, ha have high hopes about uh, their reception in, in Europe and showing the wonders of, uh, of bachelor culture and dances and, and song and so on. And in some ways uh, that, that's appreciated. And in others, though, they really are regarded, as I said before, as, as, as the other and as a curiosity. And really, the story is uh, is challenging. Who are who are the savages in this story? They might be being portrayed as as apparently savages, but uh, is it the, in fact the people looking on, the scientists doing the studies of them, who might be the real savages? This is the turning of the lens from the performers back out into the audience, really. Backstage, the Berlin Panopticum was a jungle of stage props, a stuffed tiger and monkey several spears, and an artificial tree with leaves of cloth. Through cracks in the curtains, Hilda watched as Castan leapt onto the stage. He made a joke of introducing Professor Verkov, the real one, in the flesh, and the audience laughed. Hilda had heard there was a replica of the professor in the adjoining Waxworks Museum. I like to think that my shows are not only entertaining but educational and of scientific merit. You come to be amused and amazed, but also to be informed. Let me hand you then to the learned, esteemed Professor. Professor Verkov bowed to the large audience, which applauded roundly, flashing gold watches and diamond rings. That passage reveals the circus dimension of the performances, but also this curious intersection between two aspects of the fascination Europeans had for the exotic and the unknown. On one hand, the scientific, the anthropological, and then also, of course, the human circus and the spectacle of the savages performing for an audience's amusement. The worlds really were combined in this in this particular era. The, the science and the spectacle really went hand in hand. So at that at this time, well, in fact, throughout the period of human zoos, that was throughout the 19th century into the 20th century, 
there there were 35,000 performers from all around the world from faraway lands who were shown in in America and in Europe to audiences of about a billion people so that's how incredibly pervasive the views were and in terms of setting up stereotypes about race and they did that because when people were shown at the museums or venues like that they were often also then studied in the science by the scientists inside rooms or even as part of the spectacle and sometimes those scientific um, or pseudoscientific examinations were required to, to give some kind of evidence of authenticity about these performers being who they were supposed to have been. And, of course, the showman who brought people from all around the world to these scientists uh, meant that the scientists didn't have to travel to these faraway places. Suddenly they had people brought to their very doors who they could examine and they and you know they did so in in great and and quite confronting detail and formulate their theories sometimes their hierarchies of race these ideas of inferior inferiority and superiority and and those ideas and the, and the damaging ideas of them found their way into the shows so in the worst worst cases there were um, examples of people from different places of the world who were who were really regarded even as as uh, or these ideas about evolution were playing around as well and 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 being misused and misread and ideas about missing links and between apes and people and all these kind of damaging ideas and stereotypes were used by the worst showmen to to sensationalize their performances. The book is sprinkled with all sorts of details that I find fascinating. The missing link one that you suggest, there was actually a display, if I can call it that, of a human being who was cited as the missing link. And another one which fascinated me was the fellow that analysed the trajectory of the boomerang with the aim of creating a new kind of bullet that could be fired from behind the enemy. Yes, that was actually very late in the research and um, one of the last times that this performer, Bonnie, was seen in in Lyon. So, at, and at that point, we know that one of the other performers had sadly succumbed and we don't know what happened to that man's niece. But yes, Bonnie was shown throwing a, a, a boomerang and he, there's a little report about that that's in one of the French newspapers and a woman uh, who wrote a story about some Inuit people in Canada, a, a Canadian lady called France Rivet did some research on Inuit people who were shown in in Europe. And she knew that I was also researching this story and she was able to, she speaks French, I speak a little bit of French, but she speaks French fluently and was able to go through these archives and, and came across a couple of new bits of information that I hadn't seen before. And that, that was one of them. And it was an intriguing read about the uh, people who were watching and studying and just in awe of how he would throw a boomerang and members of the audience would try and do the same thing and they just couldn't do it. And only one person, an Englishman apparently, was able to sort of do it to any degree at all and, and even then not so well. So they were um, in awe of Bonnie's ability. And I, I like that as well because I don't I don't think it's, um, I don't want to deny these people any agency that they may have had in terms of their performances and their achievements and their bravery in doing what they were doing. And, of course, Catherine, it wasn't a bad experience for everybody in those entertainment spectacles? No, so I interviewed some academics in Europe who've studied a lot of different groups who were shown in Europe and there, there was a variety of experiences. I think 
partly depending on where they were shown, which country they were shown, who the showman was and who the people were. But there were, there were cases, for example, of Sami people uh, who were shown, so people from Norway, and they were shown in ways that they were very happy about, had a lot of agency about about the way they were represented. And they really became professional show people and brought more members of their family. And, and in fact, groups of Somalian people did the same thing, went back home, brought members of their family back to Europe and started textile industries back, back home with the proceeds. So people were able to uh, make this work for them in some cases, and, and had a say in, in what was going on. I think that's that's an important side of side of it. It wasn't always a victim situation at all, but people people had agency in how they were shown. The Crown Prince regards Bonnie with curiosity. You are not what we imagined, he says, also in English, although with a thick German accent. Not what the papers would lead us to believe. Tell me, are you well? Do you like our country? He points to the great Gothic cathedral visible some two miles north along the Rhine. I am well, yes, but my friend is very sick, in Berlin. The emperor frowns, his great white sideburns and wide moustache obscuring much of his face. I had not heard. He looks to Lewis, who confirms the news with a solemn dip of his head. Bonnie, show us how you throw the boomerang, Lewis says, clapping his hands together. The poor man is probably in no frame of mind, the emperor begins, but Bonnie has already stepped out into the open. He flings the boomerang, the muscles of his chest and arms rippling with the effort. It soars over the elephant enclosures, dividing a flock of birds into panicked halves, as if it were a bird of prey. The bar gun spirals more than a dozen times before landing close to Bonnie's feet. And Durondera, your dance, Lewis instructs in Butchula, as soon as Bonnie has returned with the boomerang, which he hands to the Emperor to inspect. Again, Lewis claps his hands twice, leaving no room for conversation. But Durondera looks down at the dirt, her shoulders rounded forwards. She turns her back to her audience. Catherine, much of this book is about people being torn away from their cultures. And it's something that happens on numerous levels. It happens for Hilda and it happens for the Bajula group of people. Was that a difficult thing for you to write about? Well, I think it was a very intense and horrendous part of our history in Australia, that period of colonisation where where people were being massacred at Queensland, had a terrible record of, of that, and there were cases of that in this, in this area. And so it really wasn't a safe place for Butchler people to be at that time. And in one sense, this is not, not known in the history, there are certainly cases throughout Australia and the Pacific and so on of, of Indigenous people who went to Europe to protest and to uh, call attention to what was happening in their homelands. And so this is a novel and in, in, in the fictional story, I wanted to give Bonnie some kind of power really to go and say, look what is happening back home. And so he really is having to leave his homeland and and try. He wants to go to speak to the Queen of England and say, do something about what is happening at home. And, and Hilda, likewise, has experienced dislocation in that she was taken from Germany to Australia when she was really young. And then after having having experienced life in Australia and on Pigari or Fraser Island, she's then being taken back to Europe, which she, she's not entirely sure she wants to be doing either. 
amongst all the sub-themes in the book, and there are many of them, there's philosophical and spiritual and scientific, and mm. there's a really deep intellectual aspect to it. But at the same time, there's a simple story of love right. and connection that underpins yeah. it. And I suppose I want to ask, is that what you primarily wanted to tell? Yes. While while the history really informs the story and there's a lot of research that's gone into the story, the beating heart of the story is about the relationships that the people have amongst themselves and the 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 love that Bonnie has for his for his country and his determination to to do something to uh, enable his people to to remain there safely and the story is really that that emotional human story that is the real story behind that period of history and what human exhibition in Europe what that said about the world at the time but it's the it's the human story that that I wanted to get to and I suppose this goes back to something you said earlier it raises the question who are the savages at that time and and even now history likes to create boxes for people and and at that time as I was saying before there were these ideas about inferiority and superiority and and so on and sometimes these exhibition spaces even had fences between the spectators and and the people who were doing the performances there was a a real a real distance there and a, a sense of you know look looking at other people uh, in a way that's very uncomfortable and very confronting and I, I do think that the that the most important thing is that what does this story say about the people who are looking on the the audience members the scientists who are doing the studies I think it says much more about about them about that western gaze than it does about the people who were who were taken to Europe to perform I've got to say that right through the book I, I cringed over the behavior of much of the, the white people, the Western people. Did did you yourself cringe when you read these accounts? Yes, I think you can't help but cringe at uh, at, at what was going on at the time. At the um, and even reading some of the scientific accounts at the time. Sometimes the scientists Verkov and people would be be commenting on uh, on the people who were shown and and talk about their nature and their humour and um, their good tempered smile and. The, uh, the humanity of the people. But there were lots of examples too where it was quite clinical and it just seemed to be cold, objective science and not the warmth that you would hope hope to see. Uh, it's a really nice combination of the fictional and the historical, you know, historical fact informing mm. fiction in a really nice way. Catherine, it's a really wonderful book and it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. It's lovely to talk with you about it. Thank you. I've been talking to Catherine Johnson about her new book, Paris Savages. It's published by Ventura Press and is available from goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.